Welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. This episode is the first Emerging Scholar Series episode of this season and features a discussion with Dr. Jessica Palsik. Today is September 7th, 2020, Labor Day in America. Tomorrow, scholars from around the world are going on strike. The 48-hour strike will last September 8th through 9th. Those participating are encouraged to stop performing academic labor during this time. This strike is to protest police violence against black bodies, originating on Twitter to, quote, take a stand with our students and the communities we serve, end quote. This strike is a protest of recent shootings, murders of black people by law enforcement officers. The Big Rhetorical Podcast stands with Dr. Anthea Butler from the University of Pennsylvania and Dr. Kevin Gannon from Grandview University and all of the other educators who are pausing their important work during these two days. For more information, check out hashtag ScholarStrike on Twitter. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series features the work of graduate students and less seasoned scholars in rhetoric, composition, and technical communication discussing their life and their work. This unique series of episodes extends conversations within these areas to offer a glimpse of the future of the discipline. If you would like to be featured on the Emerging Scholar series, visit our website, www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com, and fill out a form. Dr. Jessica Pawzik is Director of Writing and Assistant Professor of English at Texas A&M University Commerce. She is from the small industrial city of Dunkirk, New York, and a lifelong Buffalo Bills fan. Her research interests bring together working class studies, local and transnational community literacy and community engagement, and archival methods. Since 2013, she has led a team of international scholars and community members in the curation of print in London and digital archives of transnational working class writing by the Federation of Worker Writers and Community Publishers. 1976 to 2007. For the first time, I realized like that was the thing I wanted to do because it was putting composition and rhetoric into action, like doing something through service learning in a way that my working class, very like tangible, like I need to be laboring physically in some way. It felt like that fit into how I understand the world of like, I have to do something with words. Dr. Pawzik was awarded a 2018 4Cs Emergent Researcher Award, and her dissertation received the 2018 Honorable Mention for the 4Cs James Berlin Outstanding Dissertation Award. Her current book project is entitled Writing from the Wrong Class, Archiving Labor in the Context of Precarity. Her work appears in C's Community Literacy Journal, Literacy and Composition Studies, Labor History Today podcast, Reflections, and more. 
I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jessica Palsik. born in Buffalo? I was born in Dunkirk, New York, which is about uh, about an hour west of Buffalo. Really the uh, industrial city, you know, a lot of factories. There's a Purina plant, Niagara Mohawk. But yeah, I identify with Buffalo a lot. I'm a Bills fan, Sabres fan, all the Buffalo sports. Yeah. Okay. So Buffalo, you say you grew up there, identify as a, as a as a Buffalo Bills fan, I guess, and a Buffalo Sabres fan. And your family's there? Are they still there in Buffalo? Yeah, a lot of my family's in Buffalo, and uh, my parents and sister, brother-in-law, niece, some aunts and uncles are in um, Florida, central Florida. But yeah, a lot of my family is from Buffalo, kind of stayed in Dunkirk, is really kind of deeply rooted in, you know, the the Northeast. Did you graduate high school in Buffalo or in Florida? No, I actually um, moved when I was about nine. But, you know, it's funny now that I kind of count back from my childhood and I would spend all my summer there um, and then going to school at Syracuse for my Ph.D., um, I've spent more time in New York than I have anywhere else. So Mm -hmm. uh, I definitely I'm a New Yorker. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't I don't claim anywhere else as my home. And, um, you know, Dunkirk is a pretty small city but it's very close-knit uh polish community and i so i grew up in a very deeply like polish working class you know catholic community in western new york what did your parents do um my dad was uh a printer so he worked on like big heidelberg presses um and he's done that his entire life um uh and my mom's disabled so uh but she was definitely the um like She's someone who you give her a computer and a book and she will figure anything out, right? Whether it's uh-huh. uh, taxes or researching schools. Actually, when I started looking for, you know, jobs, right, none of my family had gone uh, to college or master's programs or PhDs. And so it was something like really new for my sister and I. And so I get to the PhD and, you know, none, none of my family and including myself know what to do. Like, how do you apply for jobs? How do you do this? Luckily, Syracuse like really kind of helps you with that and has a great Good. job market like training group. But my uh-huh. mom's over there sitting, you know, and I, I send her a message and saying like, oh, there's this job at, you know, whatever school. And she's like, oh, is it a two two or a three three? What's the research type? And I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, I did my research, you know, and so she was really getting into it. Um, so, yeah, you give her a computer and she she will figure things out. I love that because my mom is kind of the same way. Like, yeah. I don't think she went as far as like, is it a two, two or a three, three, but also yeah. I'm not on the job market yet, but certainly yeah. like just wait the for questions it. <laughs> that I thought that she would have turned into knowledge that she already had like over time, <laughs> you know, it was kind of great. I think there might be a connection there being like first gen students and them wanting to do that for us for sure. Yeah. I think, I mean, with her, you know, she definitely taught me of like, even if you don't know stuff, figure out how to how to know it right? right like you don't know how to get funding well find out how to do it you know find right. out the steps go and search for it 
And so, yeah, that was really useful on the job market. She would send me jobs and be like, oh, I think this one looks good because it's a research two school and this has a more a higher research load, you know? So, yeah, that was great. That sounds that that sounds awesome. So you identify as a New Yorker, Buffalo. You got your bachelor's degree from Stetson University in Deland, Florida. How did you wind up there and how was that experience? Yeah, so I um like I said, I grew up in Dunkirk, New York, and then um for a variety of reasons, um, we moved to Florida and my maternal grandparents had lived down there for a while, they kind of, uh, you know, retired down there. And so it was really based on where they ended up. uh, And we would visit and have family there that I moved to Florida. And because of, you know, health and job reasons, that was just kind of the great, uh, you know, situation to be in. But going to Stetson, uh, the funny thing is, is I played a lot of sports in high school, played everything, volleyball, soccer, softball, you know, everything. And I wanted to get a, an academic scholarship, but also play sports in college. And so I was on this travel volleyball team in high school. My mom and I, we took, you know, spring break and we figured, all right, I had a, I had a volleyball meet in, I think maybe in DC or somewhere, you know, Northeast area. And so we said, all right, let's go look at a bunch of schools for college. Right. Cause I said, I'm going to go to like UNC or Duke or, you know, all these places. So we take two weeks traveling up and down the East Coast. And then I come back and I say, Mom, you're going to hate me. I really love Stetson. Stetson is 15 minutes away from my parents' home in Florida. So after two weeks of, you know, searching for where I'm going to go off to college, I chose the school right next to home. And I ended up playing volleyball there, actually. But I decided on Stetson because it was a small liberal arts school and I just loved the personal interactions with faculty. I loved that you got to kind of pick and choose what you wanted to study and I could study English and French. I really wanted a French degree. And yeah, so it was kind of that malleability of choosing what you wanted that I really loved about Stetson. So I ended up close to home despite, you know, all these attempts to move away. I cherish my uh, liberal arts undergraduate experience to small liberal arts college in the South. I think that's a, that, that's something too. But I must say, I kudos to you for graduating with an English and a French degree because I struggled for the four semesters <laughs> that I had to take French for my liberal yeah. arts degree. I can't speak any French now, embarrassingly, of course. You know, I wish yeah. that I paid more attention and, and done better. But kudos to you, Jess. Thanks. Yeah, no, I love languages. So that's, I always had this desire to be like an interpreter at the UN or something like that, dealing with languages. Oh, that would be super cool. And so, but you pretty much have to be, you know, bi or trilingual, mostly from, you know, from birth rather than learned. Right. All it could be, but, um, but yeah, I love languages. So that was really great to have, you know, the chance to do both of those. And um, like I said, I got to play volleyball as well, which was you know, that was a fun experience. I will admit, I know less about volleyball. Uh, <laughs> so you stayed home, or close to home, rather. Yeah. Went to Stetson. Big move, though, when you decide to pursue your Master of Arts degree. When you moved to Boston to attend Northeastern University, what led you there? Serendipity led me there. Oh, uh, it was oh really, what a great answer. I love that. Yeah, it was really, I got to say, at Stetson, I had awesome 
mentors. My life coach, Megan O'Neill, is still there. And like, she was fantastic. But I think a lot of people, as Stetson, you know, I was still, again, I was still trying to figure out what this thing in college means. Like, what does it mean to be in college? What does it mean about loans and about master's programs when, you know, many people in my family hadn't done that before? So I think there's a really big learning curve for that. And so even applying for grad school was a little bit out of my understanding. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know when to do it, how, you know, what to do. And so I applied to a, a couple places and it turned out, I think, I think it was actually the day before I graduated, I ended up getting a a full paid, you know, position in the MA program at Boston. And, and that just made the choice for me. Um, the only reason I applied there was actually because a professor at, at Stetson said, oh, hey, I think, you know, one of our grads, recent grads goes there and he loves it. Uh why don't you talk to him and apply? And so I did. And so it was really out of serendipity. If that professor hadn't said to me, you know, this other person is there, there's no way I would have thought about Northeastern. It wouldn't have been in my like imagination to even know it existed. But yeah, it was, I mean, it was a great experience because now Northeastern is one of really, um, I would say up and coming, but I think fully established rec comp programs. Um, Ellen yeah. Cushman's there, Chris Gallagher, Beth Britt, like just amazing, Maya Poe, amazing scholars are there. So, you know, um, Neil Lerner, uh, he was there when I was there. Um, so, yeah, it was just kind of happenstance. Agreed. I've talked to um, a couple folks associated with Northeastern on the podcast, and I think you're right. This is a great retcon program. I'm putting out some some really great scholars as well. Yeah. What did you write your master's degree? What was your master's degree thesis about? So at Northeastern, I didn't have to do a thesis. I had to okay. do comprehensive exams. But I will say that uh, my friends at Northeastern uh, often made fun of me because you know, even if you don't write a thesis, you still kind of tailor your interests, right? And right, you, right. You kind like of get this, yeah, you, you get these focus areas. And I started from Stetson into Northeastern. I was really into Virginia Woolf and, you know, modernist literature. And I thought Mrs. Dalloway was the best book ever. I Me still too. love it. Right? <laughs> I still love it. Um, one of my professors at Stetson, Karen Kaivola, she got me into Virginia Woolf and it was just fantastic. Um, but I was interested in like uh, rhetorical strategies that Woolf uses and imagery and different things like that. And then I got to Northeastern and I took a class with Chris Gallagher where we read Paula Matthews um, and Paula Matthew and Diana George's uh, Not Going It Alone piece about service learning and homelessness newspapers. And for the first time, I realized like that was the thing I wanted to do because it was putting composition and rhetoric into action, like doing something through service learning in a way that my working class, very like tangible, like I need to be laboring physically in some way. It felt like that fit into how I understand the world of like, I have to do something with words, not just, and that's not to discount what if people don't do service learning. But for me, that felt like I had to do something else, right? And so service learning gave me a lens to kind of see the work that I do, like to actually make action with what I'm doing. And so from then on, every paper I wrote was about community engagement and service learning and like how I could integrate it 
you know, I had a class on geopolitics of writing with Chris Gallagher. And I'm like, well, what would a multilingual or a translingual service learning project look like? Um, I had a class on the rhetorics of law and I'm, you know, I was trying to think of, well, what would the rhetorics of law and service learning look like? So uh, my friend Aaron would say, you pretty much got your degree in writing the same paper over five times, you know, but it was always like through this lens of community literacy and community engagement that, you know, I focused on. So those areas, community literacy, community engagement, really have defined your work, I guess, since your master's degree. You stayed, I guess, in the Northeast. I don't know if that's really true, I guess. As Boston, yeah. or not Boston, Syracuse in the Northeast? I don't know if we call yeah, it Yeah, it's the Northeast. I've, I think it probably has more of a Midwest feel, but it's definitely, you know, it's... Well, New Yorkers complain... Uh, New York City people would disagree with me. It's upstate New York. Upstate <laughs> New York. Because it's not the city. But uh, okay. New York City people would say that upstate is like, you know, much closer to the city. But, but yeah, upstate New York. Let's say it another way. You kind of went home, right? Yeah, <laughs> I went home. <laughs> to, produce, for, to pursue your PhD. Um, you graduated in May 2017 from Syracuse University, and your dissertation was titled Literacy and Labor, Archives, Networks, and History in Working Class Communities, and it was awarded the runner-up 2018 4C's James Berlin Outstanding Dissertation Award. Excellent. And we're going to talk – I don't. I guess we can talk a little bit about your dissertation, but my first question is, does your, does your book project kind of grow out of your dissertation, Jess? Yes, absolutely. It's okay. um, very much from my dissertation. So let's talk then first with about your dissertation. So it's got an excellent title, and it's obviously an excellent dissertation, right? Uh, but tell us, what was that project about? What was the for that project? And then maybe we can talk again before we move into the book project. Yeah, so I think, you know, um, my dissertation really emerged from a lot of these themes that we've already been talking about, you know, my working class upbringing, this community in New York that I came from, this kind of focus on labor and interest in kind of physical materiality of, of writing. And then a little bit of serendipity again. Uh, I started working with Steve Parks at Syracuse, who is a great friend and colleague. And in his class, he actually gave us some community literacy projects. And he said, okay, figure out which one you want to work on, right? And he gave the opportunity to everyone. And after going through it, I had picked a different project, actually. And he said, Jess, you know, I'm going to, I don't usually do this, but I'm going to say, I think you should work on this one. Like, I'm, I'm really going to kind of push you into this area. And he's like, I don't know if, um, I don't think you know the project enough to, to really know how much it connects to what you want to do, right? And so I trusted him. And did that. And then I started working with this group called the Federation of Worker Writers and Community Publishers, or the FWWCP, or the FED, they call themselves. And it was a working class writing group from 1976 that started in London with a bunch of, you know, working class writers really feeling a little bit disheartened in the political and social atmosphere in England, right? You have a whole lot of um, decades of kind of conservative politics that's the time when Margaret Thatcher is like on her rise into the prime minister in 1979, but she's, she's really political at that time. You have 
periods of deindustrialization, right? In the same way that New York, including my hometown, is undergoing deindustrialization. 1976 in England, same thing. You know, the mines are closed, the coal mines are closing, the factories are closing. And so all of a sudden, this these writers who set up the Federation, it, it reminded me of my home, right? In in Western New York. It reminded me of like the narratives that I heard about my family working in the steel factories or um, the uh, like Altec Steel or at the American Locomotive Company that my grandparents worked at, um, Alco. And so it reminded me of these stories. And it was as if if my grandparents could have written these narratives, that's what it would have been. Right. Um, right. And so okay. but it was a whole network of thousands of working class writers doing this. And so it really just kind of piqued my interest. And I started uh, emailing with these people in England and then just kind of through various moments, I decided to go to their writing festival in in November of 2013, I believe, and meet them. And again, it was a lot of serendipity. It was a lot of um, kind of being in the right place at the right time, but also identifying with people across certain certain pieces of your identity, right? So I remember going there um, and this woman, Paul Nugent, who's a really good friend of mine, she was part of the Fed and offered to let me stay with her while I was there. And this is a woman I don't really know at the time. And offered me her home, offered to feed me and take me to the meetings and all this. And, you know, we were driving in her car and uh, she was asking me questions about my childhood. And I remember her saying, uh, oh, Jess, I'm so made up, which means I'm really happy. I'm so made up. I wasn't sure, you know, who we were getting with this, you know, kind of hoity-toity Syracuse University. She's, but she said, you're one of us. And it was at that moment that I realized, you know, like working class identity and understanding kind of struggles of uh, of labor and economic precarity and social precarity from that was able to identify like both of us across, you know, geographic boundaries. And so it really became like that kind of started this whole series of me finding friends overseas and then all of a sudden, you know, working on this archival project with them. But yeah, it was a lot of serendipity. You're the project director now for the FWWCP yeah. Archival Project, which was yeah. awarded a 2018 Four Seas Emergent Researcher Grant for you to develop the project. This is a project I think you've been on eight years or so now? Yes. Yeah. So where is the project doing now? Yeah. So um, it started, you know, in the really early stages, it began with this hope for an archive, right? And uh, I should mentioned, you know, FWWCP members, many of them, the founding members are in their 90s now. Mm, um, wow. So if Sally Flood, for instance, she's a member that I interviewed and uh, I'm good friends with. She's 94. Um, so the problem with that desire for an archive was that the people who want it are not in the best position in terms of doing the physical labor, the technological labor, right. having the resources, whether it's financial or physical resources, mm-hmm right, to get their work out there. So that's really where I came in is that I could kind of be part of that labor. And when I first went to England, I physically moved probably two to 300 pounds of publication. So these are like zines. And I took, I mean, suitcases from London to West Yorkshire and back and forth and like physically moving these because that was a big kind of question of how do we get them somewhere? 
right? We need a central location. The mail, you know, is great, but do you trust this one document that you have from this person from 1976 in the mail, right? And so I kind of physically did a lot of that labor and worked with community members on organizing the archive, choosing choosing metadata, metadata, like choosing terminology that they wanted to be included in the archive, like how it was separated, how it was distinguished. And so at we partnered with a trades union library, trades union congress library at London Metropolitan University to host the physical archive, right? So all the boxes of books there um, are, are in London and there's over 85 uh, linear feet. So over 85 archival boxes of materials, which is about 2000, 2,300 plus 40 years of administrative archives. So like minutes and membership files and correspondence and things like that. So that's kind of created now. And really the the work for me now is to digitize things and to really get them circulating, right? The, the archive is great for preservation purposes, but it's, it's not great if you can't go to London. I think right now in a pandemic, when, right, when people, when researchers can't get over there, when community members can't go into what is a public archive or a public library, um, you need other ways to circulate um, and preserve that that research. So I think the big um, push for me now is to really kind of build a digital platform that will allow that researchers and community members alike to do that. I think, you know, one of the coolest things about this project is I've had people kind of Google their uh, family, maybe an aunt or a grandmother, and realize that they were part of this network, working class writing network, and then say, how can I access their work? I see that you have a document from 1980 that my aunt wrote. Can I, can I come to London? Can I get it digitized? So I've been really interested in like figuring out how to make that more accessible and more digital so that people could see their writing you know, or see their family members writing. That sounds super interesting. Uh, my work, I got to, well, let me back up. It sounds extremely fascinating because, but, and it intersects with my work a little bit. I don't do a lot of any work with archive. Mm-hmm. And I'll admit that when, when you were talking about the impact of the pandemic on archives, this little light bulb went over my head and said, why have you obliviously not thought about that? Right. I, I, yeah. <laughs> right. So what are some of the, how has archival or archival work been impacted yours or maybe the field or the subject within the field more di- more concretely I don't think that's the right word yeah more no, I, I think you know I think the pandemic brings up so many um, interesting questions for research and teaching um, and just things that we do on a daily basis but for me you know how it's impacted me is first of all I would normally be in England in the summer doing archival research at, and working on the archive I would normally be going to um, writing groups in England that are still kind of functioning. And I can't, obviously, because I can't travel. But even more than that, the librarian, Jeff Howarth, who works at the Trades Union Congress Library and is kind of in charge of the FWWCP collection, which includes the publications, which is part of a collection, and then archives, which are more so the minutes and the um, Big question if you're if you're a librarian archivist like those are really important terminologies that I think our field kind of conflates sometimes okay. about like what archives are but but Jeff Howarth is a librarian in charge of 
this he you know he and his his staff aren't even at the trades union congress library right now it's not even open so people can't go and look at these documents even though it's a public you know public uh space so all of a sudden if you don't have researchers there and you don't have community members there unless you have some kind of digital platform whether it's an archive or a podcast or a blog then there's no way for people to it, it kind of is just in a standstill you don't have this history circulating at all. And, you know, some people might disagree with me on this, but I would say archives are only important if people use them, you know, to some extent. They're not only important. I miss, don't misquote me on that. They're not only important if people don't, don't use them. But what good are they if they're just sitting there and no one knows about those histories, right? There's so much right. history that just gets kind of locked in an archive and people don't even know it's there. And Every archive is really like a treasure trove of information um, that unless people, whether it's researchers or community members or um, teachers um, or librarians and archivists, unless people use it, it really is kind of at a standstill. So I think for me, part of this pandemic is really trying to think of ways to get the FWWCP histories re-enliven them, right? Uh, Reanimate them through blogs, through podcasts, through um, talking with people, through using them in, uh, I taught a summer class called uh, the Rhetorics of Work, Labor, and Class, and, and I used, you know, digitized versions of the FWWCP materials. So I think that's what, you know, archives in this moment, you know, are, are kind of questioning or wondering, like, how do we, how do we manage this? like to join charles in the big rhetorical podcast the podcast is booking for next season now the big rhetorical podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond this record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric writing studies and technical communication as well as adjacent fields do you have a new book coming out are you hitting the job market this cycle The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at TheBigRet. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at TheBigRhetorical at gmail.com. mentioned that your dissertation and your work with the FWWCP has kind of blossomed into your book project. Um, do you have a tentative title for your book project? Yeah, I think um, it's called uh, right now, Writing from the Wrong Class, Archiving Labor in the Context of Precarity. 
just maybe a little bit too wordy. But I love um, writing from the wrong class was a quote that came from Sally Flood, who I talked about. She was a founding member of the FWWCP. And I, I have this moment in an article that I wrote for Community Literacy Journal, and I call it, you know, a kitchen table ethos where, you know, sitting at Fed members' kitchen tables, I really learned a lot about history. And, you know, here I went thinking I was going to interview people and it became, no, you're going to learn about our history. You're going to kind of let us tell you an archive for you. Let us kind of narrate this moment and this series of events for you. And I learned so much from that, like sitting around people's kitchen table and having them welcome me into their homes. And one of the things Sally Flood said to me, you know, and this is a 90, like I said, I think she's 94 years old, daughter of a Russian Jewish uh, cabinet maker in the East End of London, who the, oh, the East End is a very much working class area, historically and very um, diverse, like ethnically, linguistically, just in terms of the working class jobs, there's dock work, factory work, um, you know, so much. She said to me, when we started the Federation, uh, the Arts Council and the government didn't like it because we were writing from the wrong class. Um, and I just really loved that idea. Um, I mean, it's horrible that they felt that they were writing from the wrong class, right, the working class. But it's really poignant, I think, to, to think that you could come from a wrong class and, and how maybe institutional structures, whether they're political or social um, or economic, could make you think that, right? Um, so I think that's the tentative title right now. Um, and that really emerges from conversations with Sally. Very cool. What else do you want us to know about your book project? Anything else? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what I'm excited about for it is I'm really trying to blend disciplines of, you know, or sub-disciplines, I guess, subfields of community literacy and archival you know, our archival work and community engagement with uh, working class studies. Um, I think there's so much, I mean, we have so, such a rich field, um, but I think in some, some ways it's easy to get siloed into certain areas and not kind of read beyond that. And one of the things I've kind of learned from working class studies as a discipline is how uh, interdisciplinary it is and how much it informs, you know, my understanding about the material and, um, yeah, the material structures that surround the work that we do. And I think for, especially when I'm talking about working class writing, I think it's important to think about materiality, right? Like money and finances, like how do you build an archive? What money does it take? How do you get that money? What labor does it take? What technological resources, right? There's a difference between being at Syracuse University as a research one school with the funds and the materiality that comes with that as opposed to other schools. And so I think I really want to focus this book on the materiality of what it means to build an archive, um, how that's a precarious process. Um, You know, like I said, it depends on all those, all those things, but it's also a really um, precarious ideological question. You are preserving people's histories and in that way, you're also preserving pieces of their identity. And there's a power in that. There's a power of naming. There's a power of categorizing. There's a power of, you know, doing that. And I, I want to do it ethically. And I want to do it alongside the community members that I'm working with. Um, 
And so I think that's where really that blends with community engagement. And so like having the community members be part of that naming, being part of that, enacting that power for themselves alongside me as, you know, a piece of this project. But yeah, so I think it's a really, for me, I'm, you know, I'm learning a lot because there's decisions that the community members make that I wouldn't have made because I wouldn't have known that history. So for instance, when we started organizing these, my mind went, okay, you can organize them by author or you can organize them by date, right? 1976 is starting day, okay? And they said, no, 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 no. We're organizing them by region because regions, when you're talking about class identity, regions let you see different types of work. So in Yorkshire, First of all, you'll have a different linguistic identity, right? Like people in Yorkshire have a different accent. They use different terms and phrases, but you also have different types of vocation. You have coal mines that don't exist elsewhere. You have, you know, different types of work that come from those regions. And so that was a really big moment of like the community showing me a way to do things. So I don't want to quote directly from like the Hamilton soundtrack (laughs) or or musical but um you bring up a really interesting question that I've been thinking a lot about in some of the work I've been doing I don't know if you know but people that podcast probably that listen faithfully probably know my work is in digital privacy and genealogy right and so I think that you bring up a super interesting question with your work in archiving is who's telling the story, right? And there's yeah. a certain power there that you acknowledge. And I think that's super important. Your book project is not the only thing that you're working on, though. You're also helping with, uh, or have been for a while, helping as an editor on the best journals in rhetoric and composition. I know that was started by Steve Parks, who's a friend of yours, you mentioned. But what is the best journals in rhetoric and composition? And how might folks get involved that are interested in this project? Yeah, absolutely. The best of journals and rhetoric and composition. It started, I believe, in 2010. Steve Parks uh, worked with a group of people to start it, and and the goal initially was to get to highlight independent journals in the field that maybe aren't as widely known about. And I think you know, if anyone has ever worked for a smaller journal they'll notice that a lot of times, even in database searches, they don't always come up in the same way that, you know, maybe like RSQ or Rhetoric Review or um, Cs might come up. And those are, that's not to distinguish them in any way, other than to say they need a little bit more help in getting noticed sometimes, right? And again, that comes back to like sponsorship and materiality, like how we do these things, how we get the citations. And so it started as that of like getting the word out about independent journals now the fields changed so much that it seems so many journals are independent that we, you know, cut out the independent title and it's just the best of journals and rhetoric and composition. And every year we have journal editors nominate, you know, what they would consider the best of their journal for that year. And then we we ask teams or individuals of of scholars and, and teachers across the U.S., to read these nominations and to rank them based on, you know, various, various, you know, standards that we have, but also uh, that you create in those discussions with other people, right? Like what you like about these topics. And what I think is really cool about it is that, you know, it gets people a chance to read beyond their focus area, right? If I were always reading community literacy and working class studies, I would never see, you know, those, those journals from uh, the rhetoric of, 
health and medicine. Maybe I would never read com- computers and writing, but this gives me a chance to, right? And it, it it also gives me a chance to do that alongside a group of people who are also interested and excited about reading new things. And then we go through a ranking process and ultimately come up with um, usually about the top 10, 10 to 12 journal articles across the field. And what's really great is we're, uh, I work on this now with uh, Charlie Lesh from Auburn University and Christy Gerdharry from Babson. And what we're trying to do is get people to who have been uh, ranked in the top 10 or 12 to kind of use it as a pedagogical tool to have people talk about their research methods and really kind of, right, like demystify this article, right? Like, how did you get there? How did you get to this topic? What research methods did you use? What's the origin? And then to provide discussion questions for future readers. So whether that's in, you know, we can imagine it being used in professional development workshops. We can imagine it being used just, you know, in reading groups. We can also imagine it, I use it in my classes, usually my teaching colloquium class, as, you know, this is one version. Again, it's not the only version, but this is one version of the field for the year 2019. And here's, you know, what have been deemed some of the best, some of the most innovative And you get to hear kind of the various research methods, the processes, as well as kind of get discussion questions from those authors. So I think it gives a a wide scope of the field and it kind of allows for a more what I would consider a more democratized process of, of selection. Right. You know, there's so much with peer review and so few kind of people being published each year. It's hard to feel like you can participate in that. But this is a way for people to maybe new to maybe new to the field, maybe grad students and maybe full full fledged scholars already to participate in this and to kind of say what they enjoy about reading, what they're learning um, and also to see, I, I think, see the possibilities. Right. Like you said, maybe you don't do a lot with archival work. But if you hear about archival work, maybe that's like, oh, I wonder what else could be out there. Or the same thing with me. If I talk to you about podcasts, I can learn something new. Right. So it's just a chance to learn new things from really exciting people and to do that along with a a group of uh, readers across the country. This sounds like a project I want to be involved in for sure. Um, If anyone wanted to, you know, reach out, start a reading group, be involved, what should they do? Yeah, absolutely. We're always looking. And so we do this every year. So right now we're actually wrapping up, you know, one version and we're starting the new reading group. So you can always email us at bestofretcomp at gmail.com or reach out to any one of the editors individually. You know, either way, uh, we're always interested if you have a new journal and you want to kind of recommend journal articles. If you're an individual or a group and you want to start your own group or be part of one, if you want to use this book in your classes, it's published through Parlor Press. We always have, you know, people reach out to Parlor Press and, you know, can use this in their classes. So absolutely just email, like I said, bestofretcomp at gmail.com and I'd be happy to talk with anyone about it. You mentioned podcasts and how you, you learn things from podcasts, but you're also associated with a podcast called Labor History Today Podcast. First of all, what do you do there in that role? And second of all, where can we find that podcast? Yeah, so I think, you know, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. And 
the pandemic creates these different conditions for us to understand what our research and teaching look like, right? But I think podcasts have been coming up as this way to kind of recreate, reanimate interesting conditions for getting the word out there about what we're doing. Um, and, you know, the, the material process of publishing takes a long time. Even if it's digital, it takes time to edit, to revise, to send it out for review, you know, all those things. But what's what's great about podcast is it's in the moment, right? It's you get an update before things are done sometimes. So labor history today uh, for me has been I'm, I'm part of the team there. And what I usually work on lately is I actually do a segment on the FWWCP collection. So I usually will kind of create a short history about a certain publication, read from it, and then talk about what, you know, scholars interested in a certain area might see. So for instance, I'll give you a sense of a couple weeks ago, I did a podcast segment on a publication from the 1980s called In Exile, Iranian Recollections. And I read some pieces from this book written in English and Farsi, and I actually had some grad students here, Marzia Keshavars and Reza Panahi. They both are from Iran, and so they were able to read the Farsi alongside the English with me. And so we got to talk about what this community publication is about, right? Iranian refugees coming to England, talking about working class struggles, talking about labor history. And so we talk about, you know, labor history through the lens of the FWWCP on this podcast. But as a as a broader piece. It also has scholars from history, English, working class studies, political science, talking about various labor history topics. Sometimes that's uh, topics in film. Sherry Lee Lincoln is part of that. And she, her, public, her book, The Half-Life of Deindustrialization, she does a lot of uh, interviews on there. There's people from the Meany archives. So talking about archivists talking about, you know, what cool documents they have in their archives. It's really just a chance for people interested in labor history to share their ideas um, and learn about uh, different histories. Like I said, you know, without going physically to those archives, sometimes we lose a sense of like what's possible or what's in them, right? What histories we don't even know. So I think this podcast has been a great chance for me to like learn these new histories. And now I want to go to about 50 different places and do about 50 different projects. But I think that's a good problem to have, you know. Agreed. So Labor History Today podcast, I'm adding it to my queue now. Yeah, and I think it's on Podbean now. Yeah. We just transitioned, so. So last thing before I let you off here to enjoy uh, the weather. You're in Texas now, right? Yeah. The university, or is it Texas A&M University Commerce? Commerce, yep. All right. And you've been there, this is your third year, right? Yeah. Well, going into my fourth year. Yep. Going into your fourth year. Excellent. So what are the, what's it like in Commerce? Commerce is really, it's a very rural area. There's a lot of... Which part of Texas is it in? Northeast Texas. Northeast. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So Northeast Texas, very rural. Um, there's a lot of cows and alpaca and goats yeah so it's much different living than I'm used to but there's real great community here you know the university is small but it's small but mighty there's uh, yeah. a real uh, kind of strong the, the the students and the faculty here are really amazing I think it kind of ties in with you know my working class identity kind of thinking of 
you know, students from those backgrounds and teaching students from that background has really been interesting for me. Excellent. Anything else you want to add or otherwise we'll just let you go enjoy your afternoon. Yeah, I think that's it. I really appreciate you chatting with me and this has been great. It's, it's nice to learn about, you know, different projects going on. It's nice to learn more about uh, community literacy, engagement, and archives, for sure. Thanks, thanks. uh, thanks, Jess. Dr. Pausick for joining me on this episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I learned so much from her and am excited to continue learning from her in the future. As the Big Rhetorical Podcast embarks on Season 3, we want to talk to you. If you have a book, a project, an interesting topic to talk about, reach out to us as we are now booking guests into Season 4. If you are about to hit the job market or go up for tenure, perhaps you might join us as a part of our Emerging Scholar series. The Big Rhetorical Podcast also promotes and attends conferences and symposia. If you want to promote your event, reach out. You can find more information about The Big Rhetorical Podcast at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. And follow us on Twitter at The Big Red. Leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Season three of The Big Rhetorical Podcast is going to be exceptional. We have scholars from around the United States and the world ready to talk about a variety of issues in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. We hope you'll stick around. Until next time. Always be listening rhetorically.